0: Well, I invite you to turn with me in the Word of God to the epistle of 1 John, as we are coming to 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 21 this evening. After tonight, we are only uh, in 1 John for the last chapter, only three more sermons, at least as the plan is now. Uh, Three more sermons in 1 John, and at this point we've seen that John is very concerned with the idea of Assurance. That's something that's popped up again and again in very important places. That's really one of the central ideas that we find here. Perhaps we could say the central idea, and it comes up again tonight in our text, First John chapter 4, and starting in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us. Let's ask for the Spirit's help this evening. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that we have heard proclaimed to us. We ask that you'll be with us and you send your spirit to us to understand and to be illumined to to see the things that he inspired the Apostle John to write all these thousands of years ago. We pray, Lord, that we'd see the glories of Christ and of you and of the Spirit more clearly tonight. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned just a moment ago, the idea of assurance is really an important theme in John. John wants us to know certain things, to be assured of certain things, which only makes sense in the context that he was writing to. There, there's this group of people, these groups of congregations who had seen these people leave, who had seen these people who proclaim to be Christians walk out. John calls them Antichrist at different points in this letter. And they were clearly denying certain things. They were apparently denying their own sinfulness. They were denying that Jesus had come in the flesh, denying all these different things, and yet claiming to be bringing messages from God and really tempting the people who had remained, no, follow after us. Follow after us because we have the true assurance, and John is saying, no, that these people are coming and bringing nothing but lies, and John wants them to know certain things, It was just a couple months ago, I was having a series of very, very boring dreams. And when I say boring, I mean boring. I'm talking about very realistic dreams of paying bills and writing emails and cleaning things in my apartment. And I have to tell you, those first five minutes when I was awake could be very confusing sometimes because I'd try to figure out, did I really do that? Or was that just a dream? And it was so lifelike and nothing else happened of any excitement in the dream that I wasn't sure And, of course, when it comes to paying bills, that can be a big deal. But I was there, and I didn't know whether or not this was actually reality, whether or not this had actually happened. John doesn't want us to think that way when it comes to our assurance. John wants us to know certain things. He wants us to know God himself. He wants us to know the salvation and the confidence that we have in God. He wants us to know that we abide in God, and God abides in us. That's especially what we see this evening. And so he's saying these things in the context of these false teachers who were saying many of the things that were the opposite. And we have three uh, headings, three divisions as we come to our text this evening, all of them having to do with assurance. And the first one we find in verses 13 through 15 is that this is Trinitarian assurance. It's Trinitarian assurance. We see in verse 13 these words, "...by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit." And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. And so we have that first section that's really sandwiched by these ideas of God abiding in us and us abiding in God. And we see here that this is an assurance that comes to us from all three persons of the Trinity. We see the Holy Spirit popping up here as we see in the beginning of this section that we're looking at. And the Holy Spirit's very important in 1 John, although if we were to just go by how often he's brought up, we'd perhaps think he's not as key. He doesn't show up often by name in John's first epistle, but yet every time he shows up, he's in a very important place. We can think of chapter 3 and verse 24 where we see these important words. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Or chapter 4, verse 2. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And then down in verse 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so the Spirit isn't there all the time in First John. In fact, it took him a little while to get to the Spirit, as we consider starting from John 1, 1 John 1 and coming to where we are tonight. But we see that when the Holy Spirit pops up here in First John, he comes in the context of assurance. Of assuring us of who God is, assuring us of who Jesus Christ is, and assuring us of what he has done for us. We can say very clearly here that for John here, without the Holy Spirit, there is no salvation. There is no love. There is no assurance. None of these things that he's been writing to these people and reminding them about, that they've heard from the beginning, none of these things are possible if the Spirit is not there. And so the Spirit comes and he brings certain things to us. We see, especially in our text this evening, that what the Holy Spirit does is he comes and he teaches us, he reveals the truth about the Father sending the Son as the Savior of the world, that that's really his primary duty as we consider our text this evening. And that really is the basis of our assurance, that if the Father did not send the Son, if the Son did not come as the Savior of the world, then we would be without hope, that if this did not happen, we would be wasting our time each and every single Lord's Day, We would have no rights to come into God's presence. We would have no ability to be called by him. We'd have no real comfort and assurance that he welcomes us. We'd hear the law read and we'd recognize that we are sinners and that's as far as it would go because we could not do anything about it. We'd have no assurance of pardon. We would have no word of grace spoken to us. But because God the Father has sent the Son... Because the Son has come to be the Savior of the world, because the Holy Spirit reveals this to us and assures us, then we can have ultimate and true hope. The Spirit has to do with the truth about Christ and about our assurance. And perhaps it's one of the uh, most unfortunate things of uh, the Christian church today, at least in the West, that the Holy Spirit is often associated with all kinds of weird and wild and wacky things, quite frankly. All sorts of things that are going on that we look at and just see as perhaps bizarre and static, uncontrolled and wild. What we find in scripture is a slightly different picture. What we find in the New Testament in places like 1 John 4 is that the Holy Spirit is doing an entire myriad list of things. We can't necessarily list all the things that he's doing. We don't know exactly what all of his jobs are as he comes to us. But well, we know that one of the primary things he does is he reveals God to us. He reveals Jesus Christ to us. He reveals the gospel to us. And so we are called as we come to a passage like this to correct our thinking if it needs to be. To recognize that this is who the Holy Spirit is. This is what the Holy Spirit does. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing for us right now. And this brings us assurance. But it's not just the Spirit bringing us Assurance. John is quite clear on that. There's also the Father who comes and brings assurance to us. Because what does the Holy Spirit reveal? He reveals that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. I know I've said it before in this context. I know I will say it again. I guarantee that. We have to remember, brothers and sisters, that it is not as if God the Father loves us because Christ died for us. Rather, Christ died for us because God the Father loves us. And there's a tremendous difference between those two statements. You can almost be tempted to think, well, we are sinful, we deserve wrath and condemnation. All that's true, by the way. But we can be tempted to think, because of that, what Christ had to come and do was to pacify a father who didn't really want to be pacified, to satisfy a God who didn't really want to be satisfied. And to say, I have died, I have lived for these people, I have died for them, I have risen again, and now God the Father has really no choice but to accept us in love. That's not at all the picture we find in Scripture. That's not at all the picture that John brings to us here. We see here the Father sending the Son, and why? To be the Savior of the world. That all of this begins, our salvation begins before anything was created, as we read in Ephesians chapter 1. That before God had spoken, let there be for the first time, there was an inter-Trinitarian agreement between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to save a people, a sinful people, for God's great name. That when Christ came as the Savior of the world, he did so voluntarily, and he also came at the direction of the Father who had sent him in this agreement. John's already told us, God is love. We saw that last Sunday evening. He told us that God is light uh, in chapter 1 as we considered who God truly is. And now he's explaining more and more how we can know these things. How can we know that God is light? How can we know that God is love? How can we know that God is good? Because he has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Because the Trinity comes and rescues us. God the Father sent the Son. He also sends the Spirit and this should help us to recognize something. That when we think of assurance and we think of only the Father or only the Son or only the Spirit, we're only getting a small part of the picture. That, brothers and sisters, if you're here tonight and you're trusting in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you have the Trinity. You don't have one more than the other. You have all three persons who have worked for you and are working for you and will continue to work for you, who are giving you an assurance of what you have in Jesus Christ. And so take heart in this. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Father. We also have the Son. Notice in verse 14 where this emphasis truly lies. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Now remember, they are in the midst of a society, amidst midst of a context where a lot of Greek philosophy has come in. And has really become dominant in the culture around them. And one of the ideas that they're dealing with, which will later become known as Gnosticism, is this idea that the fleshly is bad. The fleshly is evil and wicked and lesser, and the spiritual is good. And you have to get away from the fleshly and get into the spiritual, and that's ultimately salvation. And yet what does John say as someone who's an eyewitness? He opened this letter by reminding these people in these contexts, in these congregations in Turkey, That he is one of the eyewitnesses who has seen Jesus, who has heard Jesus, who has even touched Jesus, the one who has come in the flesh. And what is the central idea of that eyewitness? Not these wonderful spiritual blessings, but the ultimate salvation that Jesus Christ came and won for us. That they are eyewitnesses of Jesus coming and living and dying and rising again for us. And they're eyewitnesses to us as well. It isn't as if they were just eyewitnesses to those who lived in the first century and then we know so much more now that we can just kind of go away from that, that we can recognize that really what Jesus came to do was to tell us how to be good boys and girls and to live good, moral, upright lives. He did that, certainly. But the emphasis here, the main thing that John wants to get across is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That this is what the eyewitnesses were sent to proclaim. This is what makes the difference. This is what makes that life of obedience to God and gratitude possible in the first place. And we're called to take assurance from this. That if you're trusting in Christ, if you're resting and believing in Christ alone, then this is a message that comes to you directly. Not just to the first century churches. Not just to these Christians who are wondering and doubting in this particular situation, but to you right now, sitting in a pew, wondering, perhaps doubting, God is coming to you and saying, trust in this. Believe in the Savior. Believe in the gospel and know. Confessing the right things about Jesus and actually believing them is what leads to assurance, John is saying. And what does it mean that he is the Savior of the world in John chapter 4? Of course, you know, this is a Reformed church and we're going to have to deal with this at some point. Is he saying that Jesus came and this atonement is unlimited and it's our choice to come to him? Or is there something else going on here? Well, I think we can say with very much certainty that there's something else going on here. This is a phrase that's only used twice in the entire New Testament, the Savior of the world, as we find it here in the Greek. And the first time was also used by John as he's recording in John chapter 4, the story of the aftermath of Christ coming to the Samaritan woman at the well. And we know what happens, boys and girls. She goes and tells these people, and they go and see Jesus. And what they see and what they hear and what they experience leads them to the conclusion that this is the Savior of the world. And at that time, there's a specific context for that. These are Samaritans. These are, to put it rather crassly, the half-breeds in the eyes of the Jews. And the Jews and the Samaritans hate each other. And it seems that in that context, Savior of the world is saying he's not just a Savior for the Jews. He's a Savior for us, too. Well, it seems there's something similar going on here. That John is saying, in the context of these people leaving, of these people denying the faith, denying that Christ is the only way to God, denying that he is the Savior, that yes, he is the Savior, and the eyewitnesses tell you this, and the Holy Spirit witnesses to it, and God the Father himself sent him to do it. That he is the only Savior you can find in this world. He is the only one who can save you from the sins that John has already reminded us that we have. That there is no other Savior. And so this is the Trinitarian assurance that, God, that John brings to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But we see our second heading this evening as well in verses 16 through 18, the assurance of God's love. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so John writes for us to know and believe. As you see those two words there, sometimes they can mean perhaps slightly different things. Here it seems that they are basically meant to mean the same thing. You can think of it almost as two barrels of a shotgun. They're both pointed in the same direction. They're both going to do the same thing in that same direction. That's what John is meaning here. To know and to believe are the same things. It's to have confidence, it's to have assurance. And John wants us to be certain of this that this is the goal of God's love to produce this assurance in us. He wants us to know and he wants us to believe. And we can ask at this point, have we ever thought, and I think the answer is probably yes for all of us, or at least most of us, but have we ever thought, if only Jesus were here, things would be different, things would be easier, things would be better? Well, in a sense, that's true as far as we're waiting for the final day, the final judgment, all these things to come to pass in the future. But in a very real sense, brothers and sisters, Jesus is here. And the Father is here, and the Spirit is here. That they are here assuring us, they are here working for us, and if we confess this and we have love for each other, then this leads to our assurance, to know that God abides in us and that we abide in him. Because as John says here, and he just assumes it, he doesn't have to argue for it, because his entire audience knows, and in a very basic level all humans know, that judgment day is coming. That there is a judgment for sins that we have committed. That there is a uh, a holy and righteous judge. That judgment day is coming and the question is, what will it mean for you? Well, John comes to us and says that love is perfected again. You'll remember that this is not the first time we've heard that love is perfected. And if you remember from last time, it's not this idea that God's love is imperfect and it needs us to just get it over the edge, over the finish line. It's this idea of this love going towards its goal, going towards what God sent it into the world to accomplish in the first place. The end, as some of the older theologians would would call it, to reach the goal for which it was intended. And what is this goal, as John outlines it here? To bring us safely and confidently through the judgment He's already said, and he will say again, that it also brings obedience and love into our hearts. But in this particular verse, he's talking especially about assurance as judgment comes. That this is ultimately what God's love is meant to do. In verse 17, we read some words that are somewhat odd to our ears and have led to a bunch of different interpretations throughout the years. But we read in verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. And there are a lot of questions that have been raised about that. In fact, as I looked through it, as I studied through it this week, it was difficult to find a single word that wasn't somewhat disputed, which doesn't always happen. And you know you're in for quite a time when it does. But I think if we look at the context here, it'll help us, it'll clue us in. It seems that what he is referring to here is Jesus and that ultimately in the context of perfect love casting out fear and of God bringing us confidently and safely through the judgment that what it is saying is that we should be as confident in our relationship with God as Jesus was in his relationship with God and we can't explain it all, we don't even have time to get into all the things we know about it here, this union with Christ but again and again and again in the New Testament there is this sense that there is this great exchange that has happened That Christ has taken our sin and guilt and condemnation and that we, through faith in him and him alone, receive his righteousness, receive his right standing, receive his vindication. Receive the assurance that we will be seen even as he has been seen before God. And why? Because we are united to him. We are justified, we are declared righteous in God's sight as we have the righteousness of Christ imputed or credited or reckoned to us. We are adopted as his sons. As the firstborns, as the ones who have the affection and the inheritance of their father. As we consider these sorts of things, we can ask Do you fear the day of judgment? It's one of those ultimate questions. It's one of those final questions that often brings silence to a room. It's not a very good one to ask at parties unless you want the party to die. But do you fear the judgment? If so, and if not, the answer is the same for both. Look to Christ. Look to Jesus. Rest in him. Trust in him. As Martin Luther once said, no human religion can hold its own in the face of the judgment, but it is solely in the blood of Christ that we have confidence on the day of judgment. Any other religion that comes to you, anything that we try to make up in the worship and service of God, we can have no confidence As we see the judgment day approaching, we can have no assurance that that is going to pass through, that that's going to pass muster, that that is going to leave us without being burned. But only here, only in Jesus Christ, only in the gospel that God sent his son into the world to be the savior of the world, only there can we find true hope in true salvation in true assurance. And this is why perfected love, perfect love, casts out fear. Some people say, and some people will come to you and say, that to be confident in the face of the judgment is arrogance. In fact, it's not good to have assurance, because that will keep you from doing the works that you ought to be doing. Almost a sense that the smell of smoke makes us better. John doesn't believe that. The New Testament doesn't really teach that either. What John is saying here is that if you truly have received this wonderful salvation, if this Savior is yours, if the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are giving you assurance, then truly you have nothing to fear. It helps us to remember that if we wander far from the gospel, we also wander far from assurance. Because as great as obedience and gratitude is, as fruits and evidence of the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, that something has greatly changed within us, if we're relying only on those things, we can have no basis for confidence. Because we know, don't we? Even this week, even today, even our best works are still tainted by the sin that still clings to us in this life. Only in the gospel do we find confidence in the day of judgment and the fear of punishment can truly and ultimately go away. Because there's only two ways to be confident on judgment day. One is to be perfect, and that's out. The only other way is to be found in someone who is perfect. To be as he is, as John says in verse 17. That's exactly what we have in Jesus Christ. And so this brings us to our final heading, our final point this evening. We've seen Trinitarian assurance. We've seen the assurance of God's love. Now we consider that assurance leads to our own love. Starting in verse 19 down through verse 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother, And so John begins by saying something he said before that he'll say in different places, not only here in this letter, but also that we find even on the words in the lips of Jesus as he brings his message in the gospel of John, that John loved us, that rather God loved us when we were unlovely, that God loved us first. That God loved us when we were sinful, when we were his enemies. And there's a command here that this is what God requires of us, to love one another. And there's also the motivation because God has done this for us. There are many things that God has not seen fit to reveal to us. Many of the things, for instance, in his secret providences, that we can understand he is in control of this world and he's doing these things. And sometimes these things seem good and sometimes they seem bad to our eyes. But we can never truly know exactly why it has happened. He has not revealed everything to us. But we are accountable for the things that he has revealed. What we see here is a command to love based on God's love himself, itself. He's revealed his love, and so we are to love each other. And this is a familiar thought. It's something we've heard again and again in 1 John, and it's something we'll need to hear again and again and again, that we were not lovely. We were not a trophy on our own. We were not something or someone that God looked at and said, oh, I have to have that. That God didn't find us good and pure and spotless and holy and beautiful and lovely. That God loved us first before we had any inclination, any desire to love him. That God sent God the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. When we were a part of this world that needed saving. And this is the motivation that we have. We see again this idea of seen and unseen that John had brought up last time in the beginning, towards the beginning of chapter 4. And he says this again in verse 20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's what John is doing here is he's showing a false claim for what it is. That these false teachers, these schismatics as the technical word is used, these antichrists who have left the confession, who have left the church, they're saying, I love God. John is saying that's a really easy thing to say. It's something that we hear time and again on our own day, in our own context, in our own time and place. But what John is saying here is there is a certain test here. And it's delusional to think and to say that you love the one you cannot see if you cannot even love the ones that you can see. And in a sense, we all recognize that that's true. Even with humans, we recognize it's easy to say, I love these people who are in an unfortunate situation who have experienced a natural disaster and I'm going to give this amount of money to them and it's going to go to these missionaries they're going to go and they're going to minister to these people and say oh look at how grand this display was look at how much I love and then we go home to our families. To the other sinners that we are stuck with in a sense we recognize that the grand displays the grand declarations of love don't mean a whole lot if we can't love those who are right next to us. John is saying something very similar here. You can say you love God, the one you cannot see, but do you love your brothers and sisters whom you do see? That's the ultimate question that he is asking in light of what God has done for us. In a sense, what he's doing is he's bringing to mind what he has just said. If these are your brothers and sisters, if they are professing the same Christ, the same salvation that you are professing, if they are Christians as you are, then the ones that we can see have escaped the judgment like us. And if these brothers and sisters have escaped the judgment like we have, if God has poured out his love upon them and given them this wonderful confidence to approach the judgment day without fear, if God loves them in this way, then what right do we have to hate them? If God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have been at work in this, to save a people for the great name of the Lord, to save from judgment, to love, why can we go and hate those ones? So John is telling us very clearly, do not hate the ones whom God loves. Again, as often is the case when John makes a statement, it just seems so simple when you put it that way. It seems like there has to be more to it than this, but there isn't. God has loved his people. God has loved your brothers and sisters. You are to love them as well. And perhaps as we consider this, as we understand this commandment, we see that we ought to live like people who have experienced God's love. As Augustine once said, that great church father, over 1,500 years ago now, this is to preach Christ. To say not only what one must believe about Christ, but also how one must live who wishes to be joined to the body of Christ. To say everything that one must believe about Christ, not only whose son he is, from whom he takes his divinity, from whom his humanity, what things he has suffered and why, what his resurrection means to us, what is the gift of the spirit which he has promised and given to believers, but also what kind of members of whom he is the head he desires. He forms, he loves, he sets free, and he leads to eternal life. Into glory. That's what John is doing here. This is who God is. This is who Christ is. This is what the gospel is. And this is who he desires you to be as a result of these things. To love your brothers. To love your sisters. In other words, Christ's ministry did not end when he ascended to heaven. That he is still at work within us. That he is still making us into his image by the power of the Holy Spirit that the entire Trinity is still at work within us and we can have confidence in that and therefore we can, without fear of judgment, love each other. Perhaps as we think of some applications of how this affects our lives, we can do the John's logic here. That it isn't the grand displays, the grand gestures that we should really be considering, but the small things of living with each other, of being with each other, of praying with and for each other, of being there when things go wrong and being there when things go right, of rejoicing with each other and mourning with each other, of being actually a family, of actually having brothers and who are brothers and sisters who are sisters. This is what we are called to do because this is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He has made us into his people. How can we hate the ones whom God loves? And if you see your brother or sister being unlovely and you ask why you ought to love, recognize here that you are looking directly into a mirror. That if you see a brother and sister being unlovely and asking how you are to love them, consider how unlovely you were when God loved you. That we love God because he first loved us. And so as we close this evening, John is telling us to remember the gospel. To remember the fact that the gospel is not just Christ trying to change the Father's mind but that the gospel involves all three persons of the Trinity at work to save a people for God's great name. That God the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, that the Holy Spirit is testifying to this and working things within our hearts, changing us day by day. And to remember and have assurance because of these things. And to love your brother as a result because God in his grace in his mercy has loved you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this epistle that so often to our minds and to our ears seems so simple and straightforward and yet contains such wonderful and complex and deep, profound truth. We thank you, Father, for the fact that you have loved us before we loved you that you did send your son, that he did come willingly, that your spirit has come and has testified to these things and is assuring us that you abide in us and we abide in you. We ask, Lord, that as a result of this assurance, this confidence that we have to approach you on the day of judgment, that we may truly love our brothers and sisters, the ones for whom Christ died, the ones whom you have loved from before the foundation of the earth. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.